0: Welcome to Silver Lining, the podcast where we ask academics how East Asian states view themselves and how they relate to each other in the wake of the COVID pandemic. In today's episode, postdoctoral research scholar at Columbia's Webhead East Asian Institute, Becky Bay, dissects Park Chan-wook's 2016 hit film, The Handmaiden, examines the replacement of traditional Korean comics with the rise of webtoons and explores the Korean cultural phenomenon that is esports.
1: So it seems like you cover a wide variety of topics. You might attribute it to procrastination, um, but certainly a wide variety of East Asian culture topics and facets of digital media. What would you say led you to be interested in these topics beyond perhaps that interest in regulatory practices?
2: There were a couple of different things. Um, on a very pragmatic note, um, I had been taking um Chinese and Japanese language um, throughout my uh, graduate studies, and I kind of wanted to use that. And there aren't actually a lot of time periods where all three can come into play usefully um, Mm -hmm. because during the Cold War, um, well, the Chinese, the mainland Chinese PRC film um, scene is rather. it's, it's, it's a rather separate entity from the Korean or Japanese industries um, where, where there's quite a lot of, you know, overlap and, and interaction. I, I felt like looking at the Japanese empire was a good opportunity. Um, that's one very pragmatic, very like, um, <laughs> not very lofty uh, <laughs> uh, factor. But the other thing is that, um, we talk a lot about film um, as a text. We look at it and we try to read it. We try to analyze it visually, et cetera, et cetera, which is all super, super important. But one thing that um, I do always back away from a little bit is um, looking at film too much in the mode of almost a literary analysis kind of mode because one thing that really for me separates film and other cultural production is capital. It's how much money it takes Mm. to make a movie. It's so much more expensive than a book. Um, And I think that makes it much more of a business, much more of a capitalist business venture than any other cultural product. And I think that opens up a lot of interesting um, areas of research um, like regulation. Um, like the regulation of how theater uh, owners tend to um, conduct themselves, how, how, um, how film is funded, etc. Uh, so yeah, I really found myself drawn to that um, aspect. And um, yeah, so regulation was for me, like, uh, a really useful window.
1: Okay, got it. Well, I mean, that's a great segue into our next section, which will be about The Handmaiden. So, your article on the handmaiden, um, Pak Chanuk's 2016 colonial film, covers the story of Suki, a queen pickpocket who is brought in on a scheme of Count Fujiwara to swindle a rich Japanese heiress, Hideko, out of her fortune. This is taken right from your article, by the way. I'm sure you recognize no. So, Suki becomes Hideko's handmaiden to sway her to fall in love with Fujiwara. But instead, Suki and Hideko actually end up falling in love with each other instead. So in your article about this film, you argue that the film engages and subverts common tropes in the portrayal of the Japanese colonial era in contemporary Korean cinema. What are some of these common tropes that you see and why are they often used?
2: So the main sort of two uh, tropes that I identify are that, um, first of all, a lot of these stories, and I'm basing my analysis mostly on films from the 2000s and 2010s, um, which tend to share um, a, a, these set characteristics. Um, so these films tend to have a narrative of um, so one common trope is a man who, uh, someone who is rather apathetic to um, the colonial status of Korea, who is rather apathetic to the politics of that, becomes awoken to why this is an issue, why this is a problem. And it sort of, so the film then um, tracks their trajectory into becoming more heavily involved with the independence movement with really much more explicit forms of resistance. That's a whole suite of films right there. Um, But basically it boils down to um, there is a moral binary, a black and white moral binary of resistance, good, um, compliance and collaboration, bad and the gray area in between is not really given space to be explored, in my opinion, Um, is very one or the other. So that's one bit. bit. The other bit, which is in tension with the first bit, is that um, the colonial era is portrayed really beautifully. And I don't think this is unique to Korean cinema. I think in general, um, film has Kind of been in love with the 20s and 30s there's a like that the whole like the number of times the great gatsby's been made um or, and that era has been portrayed right it's um it's this 20s 30s flapper vintage glamour like you know that just looks great on screen um and that's definitely a part of this so um the movie that i um use as a, a key example is assassination from 2015 so that film about 20 full minutes of it takes place in a department store, <laughs> um, and you know uh, it's this sort of area, of this consumer culture and wealth and frippery, um, and you know all these people who are not paying attention to the to the national cause or whatever. But also, it's gorgeous, it's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful, um, and the big set pieces happen there. So mm-hmm. there's this tension between. Um, having this attitude toward the colonial era, this moral attitude, this moralizing attitude, but also kind of being in love with it, visually.
1: Right. Well, let's start off with that first trope about there being a very distinct moral binary. In this film, none of the characters are particularly valorized for anti-Japanese resistance, and in fact, there's a queer Japanese-Korean love story. Do you think a conventional love story between a heterosexual couple, even if it were Japanese-Korean, would have had the same effect?
2: No. Um, I think um, the queerness is core to, you know, obviously there's class differences involved here, but I do find that the queerness um, essentially allows us to leapfrog over um, the way that net- nation can get gendered in these kind of relationships. Um, so if you look at propaganda films from my own main research period, you get a lot of, um, so there are two films that where there's a Korean man who kind of gets together with a Japanese woman. And the whole idea behind that is these films are films that encourage Korean men to enlist, um, to fight in World War II. And the implication is by joining the military, you become a true Japanese citizen and that comes with a Japanese wife, right? right. So there's the, the way that I think jet, like gender inevitably gets mapped onto nationality. Like this film I think is does manage to avoid that.
1: Wow, that's amazing. And in terms of its commercial success, the queer theme of the film seems to potentially be at odds with the mainstream Korean
2: commercial film industry. Is that true to some extent? You know, I think it's actually a bit more of a nuanced topic, that one, because I had the privilege of um, listening to the director speak on this in a QA. and a and I was really struck by what he said, because for one thing, he, while, you know, obviously the queerness is such a core part, um, he also said that the film benefits from being a genre film. So it's a heist film in many ways. And so, you know, he didn't want the audience to be like, oh, look, two women getting together. He wanted them to get into the love story where like, oh no, you guys aren't supposed to fall in love because she's supposed to be swindling the other one.
0: Um,
2: So in a way, like he wanted the queerness to be really natural. But the other thing he said that I found really striking was this film couldn't have been made and been as successful without all the queer films that came before it. And like, there is a, a number of queer Korean films that paved the way for The Handmaiden. And obviously, you know, the director is very famous, so it benefits from that. But, um, and I think that's very, very true. I think there's been a good number of queer films and, um, and they've, that have maybe not pierced the mainstream quite in the way that The Handmaiden was able to, but nonetheless um, changed the landscape for The Handmaiden.
1: Got it. And how would you say The Handmaiden was received domestically versus internationally? Because obviously it got a lot of international attention as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was really interested in that myself. Um, It did very well at the box office. Um, It's, I mean, beyond um, the politics, beyond the, um, oh, beyond, uh, gosh, like, you know, we can get into the thorny nature of um, how still Korea is rather conservative and anti-LGBTQ, but um, beyond that, it's a very entertaining film. And I, so it did well at the box office. Uh, one thing that, um, I did think get, got lost, um, when the movie left, um, Korea and was shown to non-domestic audiences, and this is why I wrote the paper really, is that I looked at the film in the context of other Korean films that are set in the colonial period. Mm -hmm. Um, and for me, this film was doing something very different to its peers, but in, a, in, in an interna- international cinema context, in, a- inevitably this the immediate like parallels that get drawn with this and blue is the warmest color with um, the dynamics of a male director directing a very explicit queer lesbian romance. Um, I think all of these conversations came into play um, that weren't necessarily part of the domestic Korean cinema conversation. Uh, so yeah, that was sort of, and a contrast, neither of which, you know, I'm not saying either is wrong or, um, you know, but de- de- definitely different conversations.
1: So I wanna go back to the second trope that you mentioned, which is about modernity. How would you say the handmaiden demonstrates more nuanced take on modernity, particularly visually?
2: Mm-hmm. So the key part here is that with the two tropes I mentioned earlier, the films ultimately are set, um, are kind of suspended in a state of hypocrisy essentially, because they're really against colonial rule, but they love all the modernity that colonial rule introduced into the peninsula. And obviously I'm not saying that um, we owe, Korea owes its modernity to Japan, but there needs to be a recognition of the fact that the modernity in, uh, in colonial Korea Um, was ultimately a filtered one, one that came in by way of colonial rule. So it is a very colonial modernity. Um, This was a major historical debate back in the 80s and 90s, Um, not so much now. But um, so in my opinion, actually, The Handmaiden's very good at um, really grasping that visually, because one thing you realize as you watch the film is beauty And all this glamor, all this twenties modernity, thirties glamor is very dangerous and it's never what it seems. Mm. So um, a great example is the the mansion where most of the film takes place. Um, I'd say like two acts of the film take place out of three. It's um, initially when you drive up to it, we see this very beautiful stately brick Victorian mansion. And then as we move through it with the housekeeper, she says, um, there's no such house like this anywhere else, not even in Japan. It is half Japanese and half, Victor- half British. Um, so uh, it's from the beginning, it's this kind of Frankensteinian Building that um, it has a Japanese wing and an English wing. And what the housekeeper doesn't mention is it, it does have a Korean wing, it's the servant quarters. Mm-hmm. And so the architecture itself is already kind of acknowledging the very hybrid nature of modernity in Korea. And the entire film takes place, I mean, two thirds of the film takes place in that space within this really weird, and you're constantly, you know, um, aware of how Frankensteinian this house is because um, when you go to the Japanese wing, you have to take your shoes off Um, and you're constantly moving back and forth between those two wings. And um, uh, yeah, so that's one element. Another element is um, the fact that, you know, from the beginning, we're treated to this really sumptuous um, visual, eclectic um uh, collection of Hideku's finery her dresses her jewelry like her 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 um, boudoir it's really luscious and and beautiful and um and we realize later on in the film that Hideku has been parading this stuff in front of suki her maid intentionally because she's been trying to defraud suki so beauty is dangerous, beauty is, it comes at a price, it comes with strings, you know? And I think that's really, really um, important. And a, and um, one way that The Handmaiden avoids the kind of hypocrisy that um, the other films are guilty of.
1: Right, so something else that's also very important in the film beyond these two subversions of these two tropes is the role of erotica. So can you speak to how erotica evolves from a means of oppression in the first act to one of more appropriation and even empowerment in the second act?
2: Yes, so this is an argument I make, but I, I am also cognizant of the fact that, you know, not everyone liked the film, not everyone agrees that the erotica is in fact empowering and the eroticism is empowering because again, because we've seen, you um, you know, the, there were allegations of sort of abusive behavior on the set of um, Blue is the Warmest Color, for example. Um, you know, I think we do have um, good reason to be cautious and wary of um, explicitness, of, of, of explicit graphic portrayals of um, especially between women uh, when directed by a man. Um, we're not past the male gaze, right? Um, but Having said that, um, and I don't think the sex scenes and The Handmaiden are perfect. I think, like, oh, Pakhtanub, like, your, your dude is showing, you know, like. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I don't know how cognizant he is of um, sort of, you know, oh, I am a male director doing this. But um, the main thing is that for me, the way that erotica evolved here, so. Uh, I think the pivotal scene comes in act two where Hideko is, um, so she's been trained by her uncle since um, since she was young to read erotica effective, effectively, you know, performatively, basically um, uh, to be able to read it well um, to a male audience. And within that performance, she basically becomes cast like almost like a mannequin or something um, within the fantasies of these men. And she's constantly pinned under their gaze during these performances. And in one of the scenes, um, the the mansion goes through a blackout and Hideko is for the first time able to be alone with the material in a way. She doesn't have these male gazes on her and she's able to just sort of actually read it for herself um, as much as that's possible in that moment. And immediately the scene after is her trying out the position that she read about with her maid, with Suki. And um, so that's sort of one way that I think the film does convey like um, sort of what, what if you used it for yourself though? What if you can mine your pleasure, your own pleasure from something that was oppressing you? And the film doesn't make any bones about the fact that this erotica is a, a divisive oppression, or that at least it, it was being used in that way because um, there's this amazing cathartic scene where Suki finds out about the library and everything that was in it, and she trashes it. She, she really screws up that library and it's very cathartic and emotional to watch because she's like, is this what they've been making you do? Like, I, that's, I'm that's i not having that, and that's not okay with me. And she she really screws that library up. It's, it's pretty fantastic. Um, and also I was watching it with a friend once and she lost her mind because she studies erotica for a living. <laughs> like, she was like no don't do this! Stop it! <laughs> um, but uh, also like there are a lot of like really important visual cues throughout the movie so um, one element is, um, one plot side side plot is um, Hideko is at the mansion with her uncle because her aunt, so her blood relative was her aunt, and she her aunt was married to this uncle and the aunt later died. She hung herself from a tree. And so since that moment she's kind of had this morbid fascination with that tree and she hangs from it with her arms like, like in and the film angle is sort of always reminiscent of the aunt's own hanging. Um, and it's this sort of very precarious, you know, um like precarious position that she's in, sort of always thinking about her aunt's death. And later in the film she, um, when she's escaping from the mansion with Suki, there's a moment where they have to um, climb over a a little wall and she sort of falters a little bit. And Suki builds a little staircase with their suitcases and she's like, come on, I'll like, you know, just step on, step on these. And she jumps up um, onto the suitcases and onto the wall and she just has to make a little jump down. But in that moment, the camera, go again is like a medium close up and it, she jumps and it looks like she's, she's almost, it's, it's almost like a hanging scene. Um, it's it's the, that kind of camera angle and movement. And, um, but that's an escape, it's not a death. Um, so uh, all of these visual cues that bring back these moments of oppression and pain and trauma and but recast them into moments of escape and catharsis and, um, and, and pleasure for oneself. Um, I think the film does a really good job for me for me Um, but personally I find the erotica to be also be really that that evolution to be inspiring because it I think it um, it at least it it, it, uh, articulates a way forward for thinking about oppressive histories like um, you know I think a lot about colonial era films and how they recreate um, the situations and the oppression and the pain. And, you know, uh, what, what, what are the generative productive ways forward, you know, why do, do we have to keep recreating it? Because in some ways by recreating pain, you are actually recreating it. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're re-inscribing things. Um, and I think this film is like, but what if, what are the ways we can use it for us? You know, I I think that's the question this film um, throws at us in a way with the erotica evolution.
0: Well, that's completely fascinating. We wanted to move on to a different medium that you've also written about, which is comics. Mm -hmm. And in one of your articles, you discussed the decline of manhwa, which is which Korean print comics, and the rise of webtoons. which are online comics. Mm-hmm. How did you, the transition from manhwa to webtoons happen and did any socioeconomic changes accompany them? So, th-
2: I think that's probably a question that requires a much more thorough history than <laughs> what I'm capable of conducting right now. But um, I will say the decline of manhwa was kind of already an ongoing process. And what I mean by that is manhwa, like comics artists, you know. Um, one perennial issue that they face is revenue stream, and the revenue stream in Korea was kind of already cut at the knees because, A, it's a smaller domestic market than Japan. In Japan, like, it's, they're about twice, uh, 2.5 times the size of Korea's population, so just by scale. Um, artists tend to have a larger revenue screen. But the other thing is, in Korea, um, the standard way, when I was growing up in the 90s and 2000s, the standard way to read man, manhwa was rentals. You would rent them from a rental store like block, like like Blockbusters back in the day. That means that um, books would get bought by the stores, but not by the readers. Um, and this is sort of unavoidable because you know kids only have so much money. Kids can afford, like, 50 cents for, um, and then that becomes the price of manhwa, right? Like, you, you're not going to pay two, three, four, five dollars for a volume. You're going to pay to rent it. And when you rent something, like, it's not just, you know, oh, this is how, that's how much money that thing is worth. It's also the socioeconomic associations you make with that thing. Manhwa became a rental product. Um, and I think that sort of brought it down in the socioeconomic association we had with just even the 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 job. Where if you were a manhwa artist, I, I used to wanna be one. I used to wanna draw comics as a kid. And my mom was like, absolutely not, <laughs> absolutely not. Like. I, well for one she knew that it was like a, it could very easily lead to destitution but the other and it's very labor intensive but the other part is she also was intensely aware of how looked down on it was initially when i wrote that article back about four or five years ago um the webtoon scene did not actually look quite like it does right now um i was optimistic that posting these online and then locking them, um, um, so making them pay-per-view or like access paywall protected um, would offer new revenue streams that um, would evade the rental aspect, the rental association. Um, And I think that's true for some artists, I think some artists did find um, webtoons very lucrative, but the problem is that right now the market is incredibly saturated and controlled by um, a limited number of major portals at the at the top level, um, and they um, because major portals like Naver and Tom they don't well actually Tom I think might do but um, a lot of these portals don't institute paywalls so they pay a flat fee to their artists um, for posting and it's very richer get rich it's um, there's you know the top artists who get the most clicks they tend to really rake it in and then the minimum lowest um, ranges is quite low Having said that I do think um, you know the socioeconomic associations have changed because the other part of my argument in that article was that rental stores are really kind of gross (laughs) um so um if you've ever been to one they tend to be underground they tend to no windows they they're wall-to-wall shelves that like these sliding shelves um they kind of smell like old ramen a lot because you can sit in there and eat ramen um and coffee and things like that you can snack and everything is kind of sticky because like food so it's this inherently like space that you you're not intending to stay there forever. You're, you're there to pass a two, two to three hours of time. I think that association is also was also like like tied to manhwa for a while. And I think with webtoons, you you remove that physical association. That's I think the the the, the cultural practice of reading manhwa has fundamentally changed.
0: So interesting. So can you explain um, how? manhwa is different from webtoons in terms mm. of content?
2: Mm. So on a narrative analysis level, I don't know that I can identify key major differences, but it really is on the, all the visual. Um, so comic books, as we commonly, I, I don't know how familiar you guys are with um, Japanese manga, but very much in the same way. Um, if you have a volume of manga, you have a two page spread. And the thing about the two page spread is that the panels tend to be designed for your eye to travel in a certain way. So if you're reading left to right, then it's from top left to bottom right. And that, that sort of arra- that panel arrangement is an art form in itself. And it defines, you know, how big the panels are, um, you know, um, how you choose, to, how big you choose to make the panels like relates to the impact that you want it to have sometimes, some, Artists, you know, you 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 turn a page, and sometimes it's a full two-page spread with which with which being one picture, no panels, and that's for the really impactful scene, right? Um, so there's ways that the form, that format, um, directly relate to the content and the the almost the. Um, there's a mobility to it in a way because as your eye is moving, um, you know, in an action scene panel to panel, um, it's almost like a a strip of animation, real, right? Um, But that all goes out the window with web comics because you're scrolling and there's no space limit, really. Really, there's no actual space limit. Mm -hmm. Um, And this idea of carefully coordinated panels that fit together perfectly and sort of have those connections across the two-page spread, that's all gone too. Panels can be whatever the hell you want, really. Um, Which is in some way freeing for artists. I've seen like really beautiful um, web comics where um, the artist takes advantage of the infinite scroll and like there's no panels whatsoever. It's just one long beautiful stream. Um, It also means artists are free to use color you know, manhwa has to be black and white for, because ink, because printing, uh, but uh, web comics can be whatever you want, like no, no limits whatsoever in terms of physical materiality, um, but also you do lose something, right? You lose something with the, with the loss of the two-page spread, with the loss of those constraints. Um, those constraints sometimes are what makes something interesting. Um, uh, so yeah, that's I think the main difference
0: Let's see and you're talking when you were explaining about who would go to these manhwa stores in the past you were saying it was children um so what does it mean for you to study this category that is a children's genre um of cultural output
2: oh i don't actually necessarily think at all that web comics are a children's genre um uh i'm well with manhwa like yeah you had adults but, but... Like children makes it sound like they're seven. Like I went to the Banpa store like throughout my teens and my, my mom was really mad at me about it. Um, but so it's like a lot of teens. Basically what I'm saying is they don't have their own income. So they have, they, there's it's limited how much money they can spend. Um, Uh, But now, you know, like, that generation that read manhwa, like, we we have a lot of adult generations now that grew up reading manhwa, like, and they all are have disposable income. So they will, they will pay for that paywalled content. Well, great. Thanks so
1: much, Becky. I think that's about it in terms of all of our questions. Um, thank you for answering so thoroughly to, to the wide variety of questions we had. I'm really interested in not only the subjects that you're exploring, but how there seems to be so many parallels that you can draw between them. I mean, even just this parallel you drew between esports and other sports, that's really fascinating.
0: You've been listening to Silver Lining with Yanwa Chen, Ji Moon, and Jasleen Chaga. This podcast is a project from the Columbia Global Collaboratory, which seeks to tackle global challenges by cross-cultural collaboration. Thanks to our guest speaker this week, Becky Bay, and thanks to you for tuning in.